I'm Justin. I'm Marius. I'm Kay. I'm Mark. I'm Dylan. I'm Nolan. I'm Corey. I'm Jamie. I'm Nick. And, and this, this is, is Comicsverse. Welcome to another Comicsverse podcast. This is the second parter of two parts on the Rick Remender run of Uncanny X-Force. So we are just going to get into it, and we are going to... I don't know what we're going to talk about. We're still we're just going to get into it, so listen here. I couldn't have been more excited at the beginning of Volume 3. Why? Because my favorite all-time badass X-Men villain was in it, Shadow King, who I think deserves more screen time. Number one. Shadow King is so scary. He is scary. Number one, the dude knows how to wear white after Labor Day. Just throwing that out there. <laughs> he slays it. Just throwing that out there. He slays the color white. It's Blade beautiful. Trick. Yeah. Uh, not everyone can do that. It's Egypt. <laughs> People are very conscious of wearing white after Labor Day, and it's just an In issue. Egypt? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, especially the Coptic Christians. The Egyptians are known for it. Yeah. No, absolutely. Yeah. <laughs> that's what that's what they're known for and not like ancient civilization or anything <laughs> so uh, a few of us came across the shadow king previously he's got a super long history with the x-men he's got a really uh, interesting backstory so we're not gonna get into it now but check it out online you know had some stuff with storm going on way back in the day in the claremont era so Kay, you know him from uh the wolverine and the x-men cartoon because that's who emma fights in that scene yes yeah and yeah that's who she defeats on the astral plane and jamie i think you remember him from the new mutants book when he took over karma's body when he took yeah, over Karma's evil. body, yeah, totally. But also, he saved Karma's narrative, so I kind of appreciated it. Right? Yeah, yeah. He and he tried to kill like Cannonball, Spain, all those people. So, how do we feel about the appearance and uh, reemergence of the Shadow King, and how does his appearance here stack up with some of his former appearances? For those of you who have read Shadow King before, Marius. The first time that I read a comic book involving the Shadow King was probably like this miniseries. It was about Storm. It was called Worlds Apart, where she kind of gets to like, uh, it's kind of thematized how she's got this life with the X-Men, but uh, like then she's also the queen of Wakanda. And the Shadow King is like this extremely powerful telepath who would just like... over her like like entire life just like take control over the people that she loves and uh makes her fight them and i thought that like compared to that the menacing aspect of the character was like really well represented in uncanny x-force because i think what makes him so uh menacing and like such a great villain is that he knows the weak emotional weaknesses of uh his opponents so uh that was like there was like this one scene where psylocke was like okay i uh he knows like too many of my weaknesses i can't defend all mm-hmm. of them at the same time any longer and that was like i feel like that's what makes him special and i like that uh jamie i was just gonna go off what mary was saying i think that when I first introduced to him in New Mutants, he was pretty terrifying in the sense that he was so powerful that he could basically take over all the people around you and yourself and like completely change your reality. Like your life did not belong to you anymore when he was around. And I think that the minute he showed because of that, the minute he showed up in Uncanny X-Force, I like immediately knew that like Archangel was like done. And I mean, and he, and he and I was right. So I think that he has like a really intense level of terror just by from simply being able to control things so well. It's actually a very simple evil he has, and I am terrified of it. Yeah, it's very scary. Anybody else on Shadow King? Nolan? Nope. All right, cool. Oh, Nolan, we can't hear you. I muted that before. Oh. Shadow King's just great. He's uh, he's like top five X-Men villains, and X-Men have like the best villains except maybe Batman. 
Oh, yeah. I, I, I like that. I like that positivity for the X-Men. So, Mary, she made this interesting point earlier about after all the killings done by the protagonists in the story of Uncanny X-Force, that the uh, X-Force team is typically silent and they kind of like experience the weight of their actions in these silent pan- silent panels. Uh, when you brought up silence, I thought of Harold Pinter, the playwright, and he was referring to his Uh, play birthday party and he said silence is the absence of words but never the absence of meaning and way back when i thought that was like all deep (laughs) uh now not so much but it's still kind of deep so does you think that rings true for these moments and uh if you do think it does what do you think is the meaning conveyed through the creative team's use of silence marius uh i just think it's an interesting like recurring theme because it happens like each time after there was like a controversial like decision to be made and someone actually had like the audacity to to make that decision and i think that the panels in which the characters would just stare at each other are really expressive because their uh, facial expressions would say something that could not be summed up with any words or whatsoever so uh, like the the silence uh, carries over this like feeling of unease and uh, like the terrible atmosphere of uh, having done something horrible uh mark I definitely agree with everything Marius just said, but what immediately comes to mind for me with these moments of silence is in horror movies, thing, certain things they do, like when you never see the monster or the horrible thing happening, like it's happening, like you hear it and it's off screen, but you're left to your own devices to kind of come up with what's happening at that moment. And I feel like this is this kind of same mechanism as that, where you have nothing is being said, so you have to think about and really get into the minds of these characters you've come to know so well and just let the sheer horror of what they have to deal with just sink in for like watch them deal with it and by doing so like imagining their thought process processes like let it sink in for you as a reader yeah i love that you just said that actually and i think it starts to bring us into what we love at comics where it's like all the comic comic book theory stuff all the scott mccloud stuff closure identification through simplification i mean here we have a chance to superimpose onto these characters how we might feel after going through something like this and i think that's something that comics does so well and did so well uh just going off of that in the theory stuff i was going to say that the way that they use the silence in those panels obviously you can't ever hear a comic book but for some reason the way that the dialogue was, it was they were very dialogue heavy issues, which I really liked. But because they were so dialogue heavy when it was silent, it actually felt like those panels would prolong longer whenever there wasn't text in them. Like they actually felt like a moment in time taking longer, especially when they were at the end of the issue. Yeah, it's good and pacing. I thought it was awesome. Cool. Did, did anyone feel, I hope no one felt differently, but I, I think that they were really successful. Did anyone feel that they were unsuccessful in any way? No. No, me neither. Okay, cool. We can move on. Yeah, so I was going to get into a lot of the Magneto scene. Uh, there's a lot to say about it, uh, but, you know, let's just say what happened was that M- Magneto received an envelope. He found out where a Nazi was living who had uh, a prior relationship with him when he was in the concentration camps, and Magneto asked Wolverine to kill this person. Corey, who is currently absent, will, will be returning later for the conclusion of this, uh, feels that you know Magneto is would never have done that he would have killed the guy himself he would never have you know teared up like that i personally think it's very magneto uh what happened and was showed the depth of his character 
so you know what were your just what were your thoughts on the scene because we only can only really do one question about this marius uh yeah we'll pretty much agree with uh what you just said justin because i think it's it's like kind of a situation where um the ghost of his past would like overwhelm him and even though that's not really something that you would expect from a character like magneto when you just look at him at, at like a superficial level when you read some of like the uh, colin bunn stuff Currently, that's it's just I feel like there's a lot like weaknesses to the character, especially when it comes to his childhood and in the concentration camps, like obviously and understandably. So I could see that uh, he wouldn't want to do this himself, but he doesn't want to like live with the thought that this person is having a comfortable life in Argentina. So I can see that. definitely. Uh, yeah, no one then Mark. I think this is a Magneto, you know, we've seen a lot of different Magnetos written by different authors, but this is the Magneto I want to see, an emotionally complex Magneto who is capable of both villainy and heroism. I love it. Couldn't agree more. Mark? I think that artistically what this scene did very well is use those moments of silence because a lot of it is done with just pictures showing what's happening. I mean, you get a little bit of the... the ex-Nazi talking to uh, Wolverine, but so much of it is just so powerful because there's no dialogue, I think, is what really adds to the the, the punch that this uh, sequence packs. And yeah, I, I definitely agree with what everyone has uh, said already. Magneto, like this is, I think this is just too personal for Magneto. And you're talking about Wolverine being the guy who's just weathered the storm for so long he doesn't care anymore. It makes sense that he's the one Magneto would call to take this guy, take this guy out. Okay. I think that after closer inspection, because I did think that it was a little uncharacteristic because I was like, huh. But, you know, we'll get into like uh, Susan Batson's truth and everything. But in going by that characterization, I think that I was under the impression of seeing Magneto as his public persona. So to as his public persona, it's hard to see that. But when you get to know Eric like a lot more intimately, it makes a lot of sense why he would go about like approaching Wolverine to do the job for him rather than him. And then, you know, just to hit the point home, I guess, since we've talked about the um the silence in the panels, but um just to hit that home, I think it was important that Wolverine or Logan at the time didn't say anything as, you know, this ex-Nazi kind of talks into his death, basically. It's, it's, it's I think it's appropriate that Wolverine's just very, like, subdued about the whole thing. Because as someone who's like, you know, is known for his out, you know, his rage or whatever, he, Eric and the ex-Nazi all knew and were like kind of um, complacent to like this has to be like it was almost like sacrificial than really a revenge thing at that point. It's kind of like, yeah. Yeah, no, I like that he was uh, an animal. I, I like that he was an assassin here and we, we didn't really see the animal. I thought that was kind of cool. Jamie. Yeah, I think that going along with what Kay was saying, the fact that Wolverine was so pragmatic about the assassination really explained to me why Magneto asked him. Because I think he was afraid if he did it, it would have been too emotional and they would have had this whole conversation and it would have made him question whether or not this person deserves to be dead. So I think that with like, he was like, he just made a decision. He was like, I want this person out of the world because they did bad things and that's it. And then Wolverine just did it. So I think that, that explained to me a bit of why Magneto would ask him to do it. Also to add to that, there's a point where the ex-Nazi says, like, just know that you're going to end the same way where the, your victims are going to come back and get you. And I and Wolverine doesn't re even react because knowing about like knowing what we know about Wolverine and his character development. That is not the first time he's heard that or like heard some kind of permutation of someone saying like, 
it's going to catch up to you. Yeah, that's a really good point. We're actually going to talk about that quote in a little bit. Uh, before we talk about that quote, I think another quote that comes up right before that is on a plaque in the uh, older man's house. And the quote on it, I actually didn't notice it the first time I read it, but then I noticed the plaque the second time. And uh, the quote the quote was by, is it Archilochus? What is the quote? Uh, the quote is, and it's from 650 BC. The quote is, I have a high art. I hurt with cruelty those who would damage me. And I, I thought this was very relevant to the scene. I thought this was very relevant to the run. And I guess I wanted you guys to react about what the quote means and, and that stuff. Marius, then Mark? Uh, I kind of feel like the quote is really relevant to like the entire run. I feel like this is like a cute Easter egg. That's also like a summary of what the X-Force was originally supposed to be about because they hurt with uh, with uh, cruelty those who would pose like a damage for mutant kind. So that's kind of like, that's the point. I think that if X-Force were to have a slogan, it would be that quote. Yes. I'm afraid if my life were to have a slogan, it would be that quote. <laughs> <laughs> I'm very concerned about you. I am too. Nolan, are you raising your hand or no? No, you're just no. Sorry, you're 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 very expressive with your hands today, so I can't tell. Sorry, yeah. Nick. No, you're like totally a non-vengeful person, Justin. What are you talking about? No, well, I'm non-vengeful because my I think that because that's my public persona, but my 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 tragic flaw, man, it's the jam up, the dark side, the jam up. Anyway, I digress. Jamie, I would say that the one thing about the slogan that I don't think necessarily goes along with X-Force that they feel like there's some aspect of a belief in like a greater good. So I don't think they necessarily damage me. I think that's more revenge and I think the revenge is in there, but I think that it walks a more gray scale when it comes to the phrase damage me. I think that it falls somewhere between revenge and the good of the world. Mm. The gray area is an excellent point, I think. Mm-hmm. All right, you guys. So Marius is hosting this with me. So he has been so diligent about writing an awesome script and he was the one who suggested that we do the remainder one i'm so so happy he did um you'll hear possibly later why this may have ignited reignited my love for x-men comics as a major x-men fan it's so nice to hear justin thank you thank you yeah so take, take it home there take it home mary mayor marius mary mary d okay mary so. t. <laughs> I, i'm just gonna I gotta, go, I gotta go our next segment is gonna be about the dark angel saga so obviously whenever we talk about a story titled the dark angel saga there's like an obvious comparison that we'll have to draw i mean i mean the title itself is a pretty obvious allusion to the dark phoenix saga which is like this 80s chris claremont classic and probably i think justin will agree with me on that the most iconic x-men story ever written yes although it's 1979 but yes <laughs> i'm sorry <laughs> <laughs> oh no so i mean it might be hard to live up to that but i know that some of us especially Corey and i uh, Corey, who's uh, currently not there uh, consider uh, uncanny x-force to be uh like the dark angel saga in particular to be one of the best x-men stories written in the 21st century so uh what do you think are the parallels between those two stories uh, if there are any at all justin i just think that this is warren's version of this is warren's dark phoenix saga and we know that by the name which is dark angel saga but yeah i think that 
so obviously the parallels with the two story there was a, a couple things that were different warren had this thing put in him by apocalypse warren wasn't really like that at first right but on the other hand gene all we knew of at the time was that gene's powers had progressed after this trauma of you know the radiation from the solar flare on the ship they were coming back on the moon from uh you know whatever expanded her powers or, 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 or you know released the um the sort of cage around her powers that xavier had created so in, in that respect the or i think claremont's intention and i only know this because he told us was that it was for gene to based on what claremont said to us in our interview gene is more the phoenix than than warren is archangel i would say yes um yes. and i thought that and i thought that that was interesting and yeah that's it mm. all right jamie yeah going off of what justin was saying i think that the it's interesting that they made that comparison because one of the best parts about Dark Phoenix Saga was kind of what Justin was saying, which I mean, that's how I always interpreted it. But I know people as they went on, they kind of like made it more like the Phoenix was separate. But I was like kind of with Claremont when I first read it, where it felt like the Phoenix force is like a part of Jean and a part of the way she was. And she struggled with it. So at the end, when she made the sacrifice and she looked at Scott and she's like, no, I did that. And I liked it. And I need to save everyone from myself whereas so that was like the kind of the character that you were like wow this really breaks my heart whereas interesting enough with the dark angel saga i wasn't quite as heartbroken by warren i was more heartbroken by psylocke who was like the scott in that relationship so i thought that was really interesting like i thought it was a nice it, it was a nice different look at a similar dilemma because it's very easy whenever a t character goes dark to make it kind of the same problem over and over so i liked that they brought something original to that kind of going dark story. Cause I felt like Warren was sympathetic, but Psylocke having to deal with that and the loss that she went through was even worse, at least in the way the comic depicted it. And so I liked that. I thought it was a nice callback to the Phoenix, but also an update. Yes. Dylan. Yeah. I think, well, definitely the parallel between these two uh, characters who go dark. And I think it's fascinating that, yeah, that the Phoenix is really part of who Jean is, but she shows up in this story alive and doesn't have the dark phoenix yes. in her from the age of apocalypse and i think that was fascinating because because of how it relates to her and her character but and especially how it contributed to the themes of the whole x-force because yeah because that shows that that can be changed or that maybe she still has all that power and she uses that phoenix power to help people in this one rather yes. than to be evil and get killed whereas archangel still isn't able to get control of that all right so i think that uh, jamie just brought up like a really interesting point and i just wanted to uh ask you, you guys something about that because i mean in both endings of both stories there's a certain sacrifice that is being made like in dark phoenix saga uh where gene is the one making the sacrifice versus like in dark angel saga where psylocke is kind of making the sacrifice like for herself so how do you think like those sacrifices compare to each other well, I don't really think it's 100% Warren's sacrifice because he is kind of fighting against this evil thing inside of him and, Psy and um, Psylocke does kind of push him to fight against that evil thing. But I mean, there, there are those moments that Corey talked about where Warren comes back for a little bit and says, kill me while you have the chance. So okay, yes. I think, I, I think that's very significant. I'm not totally sure about this because I haven't read that much X-Men before. So just 
that was literally the same line, the same exact words used in Dark Phoenix Saga, and the okay. same exact like the. T- yeah. It was a recreation of the panel, literally. Okay. Yeah. Edit, edit out my ignorance. No, 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 <laughs> no, no, no. But people don't know that. I mean, I believe me. Not many people have read Dark Phoenix Saga as much as I have. That's probably true, Jamie. <laughs> yeah, going off of what he was saying about like Warren's sacrifice versus Psylocke's sacrifice, I think that, I mean, if I recall in Dark Phoenix Saga, there was kind of a moment where like. I mean, Scott was a little selfish with it. He was kind of like, maybe we can control it. Like, you seem to be better-ish now. And she was like, no, like, there's no better-ish now. She's like, it's it's done for me. Whereas, like, Psylocke kind of... It wasn't... Warren just didn't get uh, have enough control of his power. So it's not quite the same. Psylocke was the one that basically had the control of his power. She kind of became a Jean Grey in that moment, even. Because she was, like, almost wielding him, well, wielded the power type moment. And I mean, I think that that worked really well for me. I think that... It's always been these kind of scenarios. It seems like it's always one character is losing the other more than the other, like, is just because of the power they have and the choice. And so I think that giving Psylocke the power was interesting because she wasn't necessarily the one that wielded the power, but she knew she had to shut it down. Yeah, I can see that. Justin, did you want to add something? I did. I think that although the stakes are so high in both stories, the stakes are a little bit higher in the Dark Phoenix saga, and that Jean's decision is between, you know, destroying the universe or killing herself and Psylocke's sacrifice is that she and Warren sac well you know Warren still gets to live Warren still you know will be on a road hopefully back to regaining his memories and I feel like Psylocke her sacrifice is that she doesn't get to have Warren which I think is utterly absolutely heartbreaking but when you compare it to the sacrifice in the dark phoenix saga between the end of the universe and the end of your life it's uh it's you know doesn't make it less heartbreaking but the stakes are a little bit lower that's what i was trying to say both of you but way better but (laughs) i would just like to throw that out there (laughs) thank you all right so going on during the first issues of Dark Angel Saga, we all we meet these characters from Dark uh, from the Age of Apocalypse back after not seeing them for quite some time. And I just want to hear your first impressions. What were your initial thoughts like seeing these characters? Okay, so this is what uh, they've been up to after all these years. Anything that particularly stood out to you, Justin? I feel like I'm someone on Jeopardy who keeps answering the question first by accident. Um, <laughs> well, first of all, I want to say that I re- I loved Age of Apocalypse when it first came out when I was a little kid, and that you know I think it's the time travel alternate timeline story that started all these crossover events and started all the House of M stuff. You know, we do have Days of Future Past before that, but it wasn't as successful as this. I think that under like there was a 95% chance I was going to hate that. And I think it's such a credit to the creative team and Remender that he had such an interesting take on them, brought them back in such a wonderful way. The characterization was perfect. Uh, And he even added to the narrative uh, or or to the, you know, their personal stories, their personal narratives, which I thought was really cool. And yeah, I, I think that, it was great. I really enjoyed it. I really liked seeing older Jean. I, you know, I liked seeing the sadness from, you know, her dead husband, Wolverine. I thought all that stuff was really cool. All right, Mark. I think what was really the most impactful for me was just seeing all of these characters and being like, oh, their struggle is still ongoing and just retroactively having to piece that together of what have they been up to for the past few years? Like how many of them are left? Like how successful has their liberation been? And just having to reconstruct that all in my own mind of all this history, seeing them again. And that that really took a toll on me because just, you know... X-Force talks about the tough decisions they have to make, but 
uh, I think I forgot who said it earlier, but the Age of Apocalypse people are the ones that are going to have to deal with those consequences. Yes. So that just knowing that they've been dealing with those consequences on that scale for so long was just crushing. Yes, Nolan. I was so thrilled to see the AOA characters, and it and it's it's very effective in how quickly they're all introduced. You know, like yes. they ask the rhetor- almost rhetorical question, like who can we find who's very scientifically ingenious and who knows about apocalypse? And Wolverine is like dark beast. And then bam, they're straight in there, straight in age of apocalypse. And I, the characters were so well-written, as you said, Justin, I like a lot of age of apocalypse characters better than their earth 16, uh, 616 counterparts, you know, like Sunfire and Sabretooth both seem more interesting to me in age of apocalypse. And he, and remember very, intelligently displayed those two characters prominently, you know, so he chose the right ones. And of course you can't pass up the opportunity to have Wolverine and Jean Grey kiss, which he does. All right. So uh, this is a quick one. We're kind of running out of time. So I need like a, a yes or no answer from everyone on this. So if you were first uh, faced with like the same decision that age of apocalypse Jean was faced with, would you have stayed in your timeline or returned to one that was uh, easier to live in? Or, I mean, despite what you think, what do you think that Gene and the Age of Apocalypse X-Men should have done? I feel like I would have stayed in my timeline because I don't think I would be able to deal with the guilt of leaving everyone else behind. Like, as, as tempting as it would be to just not deal with all of that, I don't, like, I don't think that I would be able to do that because of the guilt and you know just fight the good fight and like keep pushing on with with your your friends and family that are there like i i would feel like i was abandoning them if i left that timeline yes Dylan? yeah i agree with that yeah that sticking with the family you know is more important and then also maybe for a more selfish reason it'd be really hard to go over to another timeline and not and like maybe see your family who may have died before but not they wouldn't be your family. Yes. There'd be all these new memories that you didn't share. And you know she's going to have some crazy PTSD. <laughs> <laughs> uh, what about the Skype people? Jamie? I would stay in my timeline because, or I would hope that I'd be strong enough to do it because I think you have to deal with your past and you can't just when you want to. Yes. Justin? Yeah. I mean, I definitely agree with what Mark said. I was like under the impression that the X-Men could have gone with her. So if I could bring my family, and like my, if my family was all suffering, and I could bring all of them, I'd be like, uh, okay, if it's easy, I'm like, sure. Uh, if I can go, like, if I can go to a place where like I can like sleep on a cloud and eat peanut butter all day, I mean, that sounds like fucking but you'd cool. Be yeah, but like, but with my abandoning family, everything, yeah, like, yeah, everything, but like, like everybody else, it's not. Yeah, it's, I'm okay with that. It's not just like Is abandoning. It's I'm not. Okay <laughs> I'm it's okay not just. It's not just abandoning your friends and your family. It's abandoning this cause that you've taken up of fighting against apocalypse. If you like, if you and all of your friends leave then apocalypse wins because there's no resistance against him anymore oh that's true okay you're right now you're you're, you're making me think nolan uh the thing is there's only like one city of humans left right i mean the, but is that not worth fighting for well they fail you know it's almost like the one issue after a sort of like epilogue to them that you see that moves into this aoa spin-off comic i guess they started publishing yes kind of makes you think they should have just come over to Earth-616 because they immediately lose all their powers. All the humans left in Age of Apocalypse die. What was the point of them staying, you know? Yeah, I mean, I guess I guess that's a cultural thing for me because I'm Irish and I'm all about failed rebellions. So 
Oh, is that so? <laughs> that's that's all my people have ever done is failed I, rebellions. I just had like a vision of that we all, everyone here is in the age of apocalypse timeline, and Wolverine comes and he's like, "You guys can go back," and you guys are all like, "No, we need to stay and fight the good fight." And Nolan and I are like on StreetEasy.com trying to find an apartment <laughs> in the new world. <laughs> I just feel like that's what would Wait, happen. Wait, is the is the good fight finishing this podcast? The good fight. Uh, yeah. I mean, that's definitely the good fight. Powering through. I the like the good it. fight is like me getting. Like, up in the morning i feel that but yeah but if i can go to a time even with nolan if nolan if you want to go i'm down in which you know life is easier cool let me know how cheap yeah. the apartments are if, you guys. if i can afford the rent i'll go all I'll right go. so uh we're yeah. running out of time marius Any- is like shut the fuck up <laughs> i didn't no, say no, that no but you were thinking i uh, felt it you guys a bit. I'm, an no, um, I'm joking anybody got anything to add to that question or can we move on it's a good question <laughs> okay so moving on i mean Okay, there's like ultimately no way around this, but so we need to talk more about the ending of Dark Angel Saga. I know that some of us cried, some of us didn't. We talked about that earlier. I remember reading this with my best friend, and uh, I already mentioned that, but she cried for like half an hour. And did you think that the emotional response was comparable to uh, the ending of Dark Phoenix, Justin? Yes. I got sadder at this. Sadder? Even sadder? Yeah, because even when I was a little kid, I was like, okay... I love Dark Phoenix Saga, but I get that's for kids. But and like I thought it was, I thought it was brilliant. I was like just confronted with that idea. But the I'm a sucker for a flash forward, as I said earlier. You know, you show me a flash forward, I'm gonna cry. You show me a flash forward, you show me child soldiers in Africa. You show me anything with moms, I'm I'm done. I always cry about dogs. Like I, I dogs is like that, yeah. like in movies, like in, in horror movies. Like if a if a person dies, I'm like okay, it's a horror movie. But if a dog dies, like no, yeah, I can't. Yeah, do- yeah. You don't. You don't. With animals. No. Yeah. No, I'm with you on that one. Yeah. Jamie broke me down emotionally, so I I can't compare the emotional breakdown, but they both. I I got. I was really got by Dark Phoenix too. Like it was like I had to sit down for a few minutes and like re understand how the world works. So I would say they're both pretty. Upsetting. All right. I was really sad it was over. Dark Phoenix Saga? Yeah. No, yeah, I, I agree. I, I've actually Ned. I haven't read Dark Phoenix oh, Saga. Dark Angel Saga. I was, I was really sad that was over because I loved it so much. But yeah, yeah it's too. it definitely. I feel that. Yeah. So anybody. I'll say the scene at the end of Dark Angel is more like belabored and like self-indulgently sad. Like when she, like I said, my favorite moment was when she's holding him and she's like, leave me here. Oh, Whereas yeah. Dark Phoenix was more sad and like, a, it, it was sad in like a conceptual everything has led to this moment and that yes. makes it sad yes type way amen so we've agreed on this in, in like previous podcasts that we recorded that like some of the current x-books namely the limaya hopeless and bun material they kind of seem to lack the emotional honesty and character believability of like say for instance the old claremont or 90s aoa material so uh that being said, a lot of us would actually agree that it's uh, still present in the Dark Angel saga, I think. So uh, what does this story have that, uh, for example, Extraordinary X-Men doesn't have? Jamie? I feel like Justin and I are answering all these questions. I thought this was very similar to Claremont in a lot of ways. I think that they were very dialogue heavy and di- not dialogue heavy in a way that didn't... Like every line that a character had really told me what kind of person they were and the way they were reacting and everyone had individual reactions and they felt real and true. So I would say that I think this has emotional, at least character believability and emotional earnesty in the sense that every line the character said made complete sense to me and it never negated itself ever again. Yes. 
Justin? I thought that this kind of storytelling in X-Men was dead. So I was really happy that I was wrong. And I don't mean that as an insult. It's to back. It, it's back, right? <laughs> uh, I don't mean that as any insult to anyone working on any X-Men book now. I still read them, all of them. Uh, and I do enjoy them. And I really enjoy Colin Bunn's Uncanny X-Men at the moment. But there's an emotional depth here. And there's an exploration of character. There's a three-dimensionality to all these characters. And as, as Jamie uh, pointed out, the voices are so distinct and unique. I feel like I could... If this was, if you took the imagery away, I could know who was saying what part, even sort of the the voiceovers, and I I really liked that. I and I think that it, it didn't feel like it was written for the lowest common denominator, and I feel like sometimes X Men now is written to entertain everyone, and this wouldn't have entertained anyone. This I don't know if 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 I was ten, if I would have liked this, you know. But I definitely now it was something that I really connected to, and I felt like yeah, I, I mean that was what I really loved about it. All right. Anyone wanting to add anything about that? Okay, so... Oh, wait, Nolan. Oh, I Nolan. I'm, I'm so sorry. I didn't I would, see you behind, like... I'm so sorry, okay. Nolan. I would back that up that, like, that uh, someone else I would not recommend this comic book to is 10-year-olds. This is not a comic <laughs> book. It's not a, sure. it's not a comic book for 10-year-olds. That's very true. Yeah. yeah. Even if you take out the violence, I mean, it's just not something that... It's not as interesting to them. It's like reading Count of Monte Cristo when you're like a middle schooler. It just doesn't deal with stuff that you're into. Yeah. That's so true. So uh, moving on to our next segment about the final execution or the final execution saga, which is also uh, the final story arc that is supposed to conclude everything. So in the final execution, most of our heroes find themselves in this like dystopian minority report kind of future. And in an age of police brutality, I think it couldn't be more important to have this ethical debate about preemptive killing. And I thought the, this was an excellent point that Nolan brought up uh, when we first talked about, about this book, like before recording the podcast. So uh, what did you think about the way the comic reflects this issue of like police brutality, of like killing before the actual punishment, before the actual crime takes place? Anything that would stick out to you? Mark? I think I think it shows in a lot of ways how quickly things can get out of hand and how quickly X-Force can become the new apocalypse in terms of running a totalitarian regime where their their word is law and they have complete control over everything that happens in the population. So I think it's really interesting that these two opposing sides end up at the same place when played to an extreme. And I think it's a caution against extremism in any case. That's that's true. I can see that, Jamie. I would say I thought it was made the most like the most interesting part of it was that when Psylocke saw it, she immediately realized that it was wrong, or not immediately, I guess, but she kind of came to that and tried to kill herself in order to keep it from happening, which I thought was really interesting. But to me, I I also thought it was kind of interesting that they the team seemed to have kind of like disparate opinions about the whole thing too. Like, even Deadpool was kind of like, what's so awful about this? He's like, I mean, it's kind of, like, depressing. But, like, at a certain point, how bad is this? And I thought it was, I thought it was very strong in the book to have killed people preemptively and then give an example of that entire society and then say that was wrong. Um, so I thought it was, it seemed like one of those things where the book could have fallen into a hole and it used that as an example to show, well, this is not necessarily the way that everything should be run. Kind of like Kay was saying that, it's a it works for the book but it might not be my own philosophy i think the book kind of almost said that about itself which i liked yes nolan 
this was the part of the book that really like crystallized it all for me and made me, especially following upon a trial held for about Phantom X and his actions. Like that's when you really start to, or when I really started to understand what the like message of the comic is. And I think that, yeah, I was surprised to find that there's like a social moral message tempting to be conveyed. And it also really prepares you well for like vengeance to be the main theme at the end because you go from like proactive violence, violence before the fact to like retroactive violence. Yeah, I definitely like how, you know, sometimes the message seems really clear, but I like when it gets gray and that it kind of does that, has many moments of that throughout. And I especially like that it ends with Wolverine telling... Evan, the young apocalypse, that he should not kill or do revenge. And then they disband the group. But at the same time, Wolverine kills his son because his son supposedly kills people in the future. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm, yeah. yeah, that's a fascinating mix of what do you do when the future is supposedly set and certain or with Evan where it's uncertain and you don't know whether they'll kill people or not. This is actually interesting. I had some questions noted um, about this topic, about like kind of what Remender would like, what his bottom line or what his statement within the comic would look like. So what do you think is like his final statement on whether Evan will be able to like withdraw from the apocalypse influences in the future? Like, do you think that, that in his opinion there's something like being predetermined to be evil or do you think that the message of the comics that we can overcome all these influences i think that he definitely can overcome these influences but at the same time i'm just thinking about it from the villain's perspective in that as long as evan is alive people are going to be trying to capture him and nurture him to be evil for or quote unquote evil for their purposes so that's what's really making me side with Phantom X shooting him preemptively because it just takes him out of the equation, you know? Because as long as he's still around, he's still a potential danger. But it's I, I am going to be honest, I haven't completely figured it out. And I think that's a lot of what Remender is trying to get across. Yeah, that's interesting because I, I, I'm it's kind of... so much gray. It, it is. I'm kind of on, uh, on the fence about this because I don't think Marvel writers have figured it out by now. It's just, I, it's always kind of like a gray deal for Evan. But I mean, it's interesting to just think about what Remanda would have thought. Jamie? Yeah, to me, I think that it was always very, very gray. But I also was kind of constantly thinking about the fact that it was kind of like a metaphor for kids in general. Like, as I remember thinking, like, well, as long as he's susceptible to outside influences, he's always, like, a potential threat. But then again, that's kind of, like, what kids are. Like, they're always susceptible to any influence at any time, and you have to, you don't, like, kill them because of that or because they could be bad. But then it's being more complicated, of course, with the fact that this is, like, a very special kid with a lot of power. But it seemed like there was a certain point, especially within me, that felt that you can't, I mean, it's kind of like, I mean, this is like what's going on in Civil War 2 right now, much not that people like it, but it's what's happening, <laughs> which is like, how can you kill someone if you just like assume they're going to do something bad later on? Mm. And I'm not, and I'm inclined to say no, but the book kind of goes back and forth. I will say that I don't think the book would have like had Phantom X race him again if it truly believed that like killing him the first time was completely the perfect 
choice. Oh, so yeah. I do think that point. it falls more on the not killing him preemptively side. That's a really good point. I didn't think about it that way. No, that's interesting. Dylan? Yeah, and I think, you know, even though he is a really powerful special child, I and mean, a lot of people will be might try to get the evil out of him, I think it's important that he is sent to this school where there's all these other mutants and their powers are known, and some of them are very powerful, although not as powerful as him. And it's just like, if you kill him, why would you spare these other kids? And what does that mm. say? That's true. Good point. Yes. So we've talked about how what what possible solution or what possible opinion Remender could like deliver for the problem with Kid Apocalypse or Evan. So let's talk about this. I mean, in one of his final scenes, Psylocke's actually leaving behind her sword and then stating in the next issue that they should have never started with X-Force in the first place. And I mean, the, the team is kind of like, the team is kind of like going their separate ways and stopping to kill preemptively. And I thought this was really symbolic and kind of like, I would say that this is kind of like the bottom line to end the author's statement to all these ethical underlying conflicts. Would you guys agree? Nolan? I think if from the voices, from the mouths of the villains who try to corrupt Evan, we hear this kind of like cultural relativist argument, you know, that like, especially from Dakin, that like, oh, those heroes are the same as us. You know, like everybody, if you're going to kill, it's just killing, plain and simple. And but I think the way we see at the same time as they say this, that they're the importance of intent as like an aspect of ethical philosophy, like they're plainly just lying and manipulating him. You know, they don't even really think that, first of all. Secondly, they're trying to get him to like kill thousands of people, whereas the other one, the other side of the battle, who, yes, is also willing to kill is just trying to get him to like live a comfortable happy life. You know, so like there there is if you look at that part of the comic, I feel like there's an there is a message that Wolverine sort of accepts, you know, that like people like this you just have to kill them, you know, and they're not like they may say that that they're they may like use the excuse of like ethical nonviolence to like take advantage of all kinds of situations. But in the end, like, it's very obvious that they are not going to be merciful, you know? All right. So you don't think that the comic is, when it comes to ethics, that, like, black and white and wouldn't state that, like, there's, like, no possible mission that X-Force should fulfill? I just don't know. I don't, I can't tell what side it comes down on. I think from that part, it seems like it's advocating that proactive violence is justified. But I think from the ending, as you say, it seems like it's coming down on the other side. I think that artistically a way that this, this, all this confusion we have about these gray areas is conveyed is just in their costumes. You know, everyone, uh, X-Men is very, is known for its bright and colorful, distinctive costumes, but these costumes are tones of black and gray and little bits of red for the purposes of like, it's a very clandestine hit squad and they want to stay in the shadows and be very quiet about what they do. But it's also a really big part of the morality is like, yes, they have the black, yes, they have the white, but so much of it is, is gray and in what they do in their everyday lives as, as this superhero team. And oh, I, that's think that's, great, that's I think that's a great point. I think, 
It might have been Deadpool who was talking about that. I'm not sure if that's actually what Deadpool said or if this is an original thought I'm having. But it's I think I think it's a really great way because, you know, so often like I love the superhero costumes, but I've always wondered like what practicality does that serve? But that was very clear for me with these costumes. Yes. And I feel like the 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 utility of the costumes is something that is I don't think it's used in a lot of comics, but I think it was used very, very well in this one. All right. So I feel like another one of the most important motives like during final execution story arc, or also the entire book has been sort of like this redemption for anti-heroes, sort of yes. like this thing where we realize that all of these like really morally gray characters, like, just like their costumes, they are really morally gray they are just so much more than just stone cold killers and i think this this really cute scene between evan and wade during the last pages of the comic book where deadpool is being called a hero for the first time do you guys think that this is sort of a redemption for the character or there are like any redemptions to other of the cast members mark i think This is one of my all-time favorite deadpool moments because the great thing about deadpool is that when he's written well He is, there's a lot of serious things going on and there's also a lot of humor to kind of break the tension and yes. everything that Deadpool was saying to Evan about you make your own choices, you're not a robot, you're not a monster unless you choose to be and it's all about your life decisions, you're put in a really bad situation but you're in control now and that was just a really heartfelt moment and then he takes away the book and replaces it with with porno mags and i'm like that is the quintessential deadpool move deadpool is like the 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 crazy uncle you talk to instead of your parents and That's he so was, true. he was he was filling that role for evan which is something that i think evan really needed was he needed that kind of like Because he's been talked at his whole life, you know, like, you should do this, you shouldn't do this. But Deadpool is like, look, it's in your hands. I trust you. Because I don't feel like anyone else has shown him that kind of trust before. And there's also the the great sense of humor to just the cherry on top for that. So I love that. I absolutely thought it was a redemption for both characters. Jamie? Yeah, I was just going to go off of that and say that I think that Wade was one of the only characters that ever really trusted him like even the villain characters like they trust like they expected him to go bad it's kind of like the people who are gonna take him out preemptively expect him to go bad whereas Deadpool was the one of the only people who really like kind of like saved him and believed that he had another way to go and like didn't show any doubt in that belief or try to force him into a different way and so to me I thought that was very heroic and I thought it was nice that he got like such an honest response from Evan and he was so honest with Evan anyway that it made sense and it was nice. Mark? I think Deadpool is also the only person to see him as a child because when they are talking about him, when, when X-Force is talking about him, they're talking about the potential for e evil, same thing with Sabretooth and Dokken, but Deadpool is the only person who says he's just a kid. Like we can't do... like he's just a kid and it's as simple as that for Deadpool and I think that's really admirable of him that he would have that sort of clarity when everyone else is so muddled down and all this ethics and morality and Deadpool is doing what's right for this kid yes that's that's very true uh, any redemptions for other characters besides Evan and Deadpool what do you guys think I feel like Phantom X redeemed yeah. himself quite a bit yeah 
I, I in in his raising of Evan and being like, I think I was wrong. I want to correct this mistake. I think that was very redemptive of him. I think Warren was redeemed in those scenes where he was fighting against Dark Angel or Archangel and said, "Kill me while you have the chance." I think that was a very noble thing for him to do and ultimate self-sacrifice. I'm struggling to think of any redemptive moments for Wolverine, but I don't think he's a very redemptive guy, and I don't think he cares about redemption. I don't think he really believes in it. I'm not sure about Psylocke either, but anyone is fr- feel free to to chime in about that because I've I, I can't really wrap my head around Psylocke. That Dylan, you want to disagree? No, just building off of Wolverine. Yeah, I don't think he necessarily wants redemption, and he just. I don't think he needs it. Yeah. Well, he was very torn at the end, so I think he does need it, but he just acts like that's all he's ever going to... He's just accepted being a torn person and and just living with his choices. Nolan? Part of the dynamic, of course, is that like comics readers go into it presumed as liking Wolverine. He's like one of the most popular characters in all comics, right? Whereas... Psylocke is not as famous and um, Phantom X is pretty new, you know, so like, and Deadpool is also very popular, but definitely considered to be like a more villainous character than Wolverine. He's, I mean, he's on every team, you know, he's an Avenger. So it's almost, he almost has like an opposite arc going like down into the dark depths from his like heights. Uh, Jamie, you mentioned this earlier that about Psylocke doing the dirty work for her brother, you know, and I think that is like redemption for her personally. I think she's absolutely right when she says like, you know, so this had to be done and you were too much of a coward to do it. So I did it. And I don't find anything like questionable about that. She's just right. And she's redeemed. All right. I I feel like I want to bring up a point about Wolverine because like in the beginning of the run, when he executed the Nazi for Magneto, it's kind of this thing that where he doesn't even like question the order from Magneto and just think that it's kind of necessary. Even though this the old man brings up this interesting point about the ghost from his past always haunting him in these cases of revenge. But I mean, in the final pages of uh, the final execution, he actually uh, prevents this revenge from happening because Evan wants to kill Sabretooth and he he kind of like explains the pointlessness of revenge to Evan. Do you think that this is just like him being a hypocrite or would you say that this is some kind of like character development and him finding like peace with, with that kind of moral question? I think it could be, I'm not saying it is this, but I'm, I think it could be him simplifying the issue issue for a kid, you know, like, just playing devil's advocate here, he could just be oversimplifying this and trying to, to having this be a teaching moment for Evan. Because if Evan, with his level of power, if he begins to think that taking revenge is okay, like, you don't know where that's going to go. So I think, I think it, there's some character development in, involved, but there's a part of me that's like, he, like I, I definitely think that Wolverine is, a, is motivated by revenge a lot. So I think that, Maybe he's trying to prevent Evan from being like him. I'm not really sure, but I, that's, that's how I read it. Yeah, I like that. I th- thought first when I read that, that that ending was a little too dramatic for or like pushing this certain message a little hard. But, but yeah, I like that. Maybe he's 
over dramatic because it's a kid and you have to you have to push that lesson. He's just a kid, man. <laughs> yeah, it makes sense. Okay, so we're finally wrapping up the segment, but before that, just a quick yes or no question. Overall, did you think that uh, the final execution did deliver like satisfying answers to the underlying moral conflicts overall, and did it like overall do a good job at like wrapping all wrapping everything up and connecting all these loose ends? Absolutely. All right. You yes. guys agree? Yes. 100%. Yeah, I think so. Perfect. Jamie? I think it did a good job of having like an ending that wasn't necessarily a happy ending, but felt like the kind of great ending that you would expect from a great book. Yes. Yeah. That's, I agree. That's really true. Okay. Moving on to the next segment. So now it is time for our character analysis segment and something I think that we're known for and that people really enjoy the Comics First podcast for. So we use acclaimed acting, acclaimed acting coach Susan Batson's book, Truth, to discuss the three-dimensionality of characters. So I'm starting to think we should call this segment the Batson test, like the Bechdel test or something. I like or, that. Or the, comics like ver- that. or the comics first test. Or the Batson comics first truth test. Wow. It's I kind of a mouthful. It's an acronym at it that point. It is a mouthful. Yeah. Oh, you're the right. I don't want to. test. Maybe just the maybe just the comics first test. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Uh, no, it's hers. We can't do that. We should call it the Batson test. We should call the it. Oh, Susan, yeah, because like that's Susan's test. Like that's, something kind of like after school special, like Susan's test. Susan's <laughs> test. Yeah, because calling it the comics first test implies that we came up with yeah, this we amazing, like acting thing, and we did not. No, the only thing we came up with was to apply method acting. To you looking at the three-dimensionality yeah. of characters in comics. So let's do it. All right, cool. Here we go. So yeah, so the first thing, we're just going to talk about Betsy. We're just going to talk about Warren because uh, we don't have a lot of time. So Susan Batson breaks down good characterization into three dimensions. The public persona, the need, and the tragic flaw. Um, if you listen to our podcast, you've heard of this a lot of times, so I'm just going to go through this pretty quickly. Uh, the public persona is defined as such by Batson in her book, Truth. Whether we're conscious of it or not, the personal obstacles, lingering hurts, and unresolved issues that we experience in childhood remain with us throughout our lives. This pain, this unresolved conflict, and unfulfilled desire unconsciously motivates us to do the things we do and to make the choices that we make. We create a public persona to hide these vulnerabilities and weaknesses and all that they represent. It's uh, no different for a character in a script, which is why we're talking about it here. So like I said, we're going to be talking about Warren or Betsy. And I just want to also add that the public persona is how that character wants to be seen to the world. So, so let's go through every single person here. Nolan, we'll start with you. How does Warren want to be seen by the world? Warren's confidence is like frequently mentioned in this comic, his like extreme confidence. And so I'd say, you know, like many men, he wants to be perceived as like ready for everything, confident in the face of everything. He frequently chafes against Betsy's kind of like implications that he needs help, you know? Should I go on to the other two? No, we're just going to do public persona. No, we're just going to do public persona right now. Uh, Jamie, how about you? I would say a very similar thing because, I mean, he is the third Worthington. So he's got, comes from money. And like, even when they have that flashback and Betsy asked him about the money, he's like, oh yeah, like I can't complain. And she's like, well, it's a lot of responsibility. And so it kind of like chips away. 
I think that he wants to, I think responsibility, I would add that to the control factor. I think he wants to seem responsible for, and like, and like able to hold the burden of the responsibility of these lives and his money and et cetera. Uh, Mark. I, I agree with that. And I also, I agree with everything that's been said. And I also think that at, at the very least, he doesn't want to be seen or defined as Archangel. Like, I think he knows that's not who he is, just physically, because they are two different people, as we've talked about. So I, I think he's that having this other person living inside his brain is really what's been decaying his confidence and making that it that much harder for him to fulfill these so many responsibilities that he has. Yeah, I agree. I think um, that he wants to be capable of self-control and of taking these responsibilities, which is why I think it's kind of admirable that he lets Psylocke try to help him, even though it doesn't work out. All right. So I, I think that, like, if you if you take a look at, like, the roots of the character and how, uh, like, he's portrayed in some of the original five X-Men stories, he's like this. I think he's like, especially because of his wings, because of his nickname, he's kind of, sometimes he's kind of seen like this beacon of hope and like a symbol for something. And he's, I mean, he's coming from like a really rich family. And I think he wants to show the world, like the image of him as like this happy man with fast cars and beautiful girlfriends. Not in this run particularly, though. I, I think that like in this run, he just wants to be seen as someone who's going out of his way to uh, eliminate these threats, especially everything that's related to Apocalypse. I really agree with what you uh, just said, Marius, especially in regards to how he was perceived previously. For me, I think that Remender is such a good writer that the answer is normally something that we have to dig a lot further to get. But we kind of, uh, the Remender is so good, he gives it away twice in the stuff that I read. And the words like Playboy philanthropists come up you know someone wealthy also someone who doesn't like flaunt their wealth in the same sort of you know he's not he's not new money right he's warren worthington the third and i think that when we see one of my favorite scenes is the flashback to him as young angel and xavier tells him that he's so full of courage more than anyone else on the team i love that and i think that warren maybe doesn't want you to know that he's you know he wants to play it a little bit cool and, and, you know, be a little bit humble. And I think that he is that way and he wants to be seen that way. So I think that that's a cool thing about him. Let's go through and look at Betsy. Let's do the reverse. Uh, Nolan. I think Betsy wants to be independent. I don't know whether it's her, like, inner need or her, like, outer presentation. She acts independent, certainly, and has trouble with it. Jamie. I think that... I think that she wants to be seen as someone who's justified in her actions. I think that she wants people to see her as having like a strong ethics. I think that that in this run is like especially clear. I think that's why it probably hurts her so much later on when people question that aspect. So I think that she wants to be seen as having like a really strong moral compass. Mark? I think that I definitely agree. I think she does want to be independent and justified in everything that she does. But I can't get past this control freak aspect of her. I feel like she's the kind of person who needs to be in control of things and who needs to 
have people need her to be in control of certain aspects of them. I feel like a lot of the relationship she had with Warren was came to be because he needed her to be there to help him fight this evil inside of him. And I think that's as independent and justified as she wants to be. She also has this need to control things and this need to be needed, I feel. Yeah, going off of that or building off of her relationship with Warren, I think her public persona is that she wants to be someone who is capable of helping Warren and that she's someone who is independent and helping others, that she's selfless and wants to help Warren for him. Uh, Yeah, I, I would kind of agree with everything you just said, but I also think that I mean, she just wants to be seen as a person who does the right thing, which is kind of why she has this sort of mental breakdown where she's kind of like questioning like her own existence and whether it's it's justified at all. And she's like, she has this scene where she she just realizes for herself that she needs to die. And then in the future, she even attempts suicide because she's seen what she's become so that's kind of like where the public persona she doesn't really like fulfill like the expectations that she has to herself i think yeah i agree with everything that all of you guys said actually i just would like to add on that and i think Dylan's is something that i really agree with is that she wants to be seen as someone who can help warn as someone who's selfless but i think Someone else said this. Was, I think it was Mark. So that her actions are justifiable. Who was that? That was Jamie. Oh, Jamie. Yeah, that her actions are justifiable. Sorry, Jamie. Yeah, I think that that is so right because I think she wants to be seen as pragmatic and someone who has her emotions in check because I th- if I mean, I'm reading into this, of course, but because she also wants to be seen as an assassin and because she is an assassin, let's face it. I mean, way before this, you know, going back to her Lady Mandarin days, you know, if she is an assassin with her emotions unchecked, she's considered dangerous. And that's, that would be the one thing that would remove her from her X-Men family. And I think so being seen as someone who can control their emotions is, is, is really paramount to her. And I also think that, you know, Marius talked about that scene before earlier, and I, you know, I don't want to get too much into the next thing, but we see her lose her emotion many times, and that's what makes that that scene at the end of Dark Angel Saga that you and I love so much, Jamie, when she's like, I don't want to leave, leave me here. You know, she kind of utterly loses it. And we all are like, it's okay. But she's hard on herself. And it's, it's kind of a beautiful thing. And Batson actually talks more about the public persona when she gets into need. And she says great acting, but I'll say great writing. Moves beneath the mask of the public persona. It reveals and communicates the intimacy that lives underneath that covers the need. Even though they may not know it, everyone in an audience has a public persona of their own, every reader, and a need that covers it. And we can sense these two forces at work in a character, even if we can't name them. To make a character more than one-dimensional, the actor or writer in this case, has to know the need that makes the characters covering public, that makes the characters covering public persona necessary. And she defines unfulfilled need as the universal truth at the heart of all characters. And another thing, you know, when you, if you take classical and she does mention it in her book, way to determine the need easily or, or easier is to think of the, look at the public persona and think of what the opposite of that might be. Marius, we'll start with you. I think in the case of Warwin, if we 
would just say like take this playboy image but also like this preemptive killer image as like his public persona i think then his need could be like the need for like a normal life probably with with betsy because, stability normalcy yes i think it's pretty much i mean if you take uh, if you take a look at his life right now it's pretty much the opposite of like peaceful and normal and i mean he's got he's got to deal with like a lot of demons so i think that that would be his his need and she she kind of gives him that which makes that so beautiful absolutely warren is considered one of the unluckiest people in the marvel universe he winds yes. up on those lists all the time dylan what do you think i think mary springs up great points and that and that yeah he wants to be humble as his public persona and that he wants to be able to endure with everything he has and Psylocke points out in his when they meet that he really should admit that that he has troubles that life and so yeah i think a need is actually to not have that life at all and not not just to admit that that life is hard but that he wants to have a different life without all the money and the fame I am going to try to summarize everything that has been said already with one soundbite, which is that Warren wants to be so many things. He wants to be this successful member of X-Force. He wants to be this responsible member of the Worthington dynasty. He wants to be a good partner to Betsy. But the one thing he needs to be is calm and peaceful. And I don't know if those two things can, if the, the things he wants and the things he needs can coexist. And I think that's the real conflict of the character. Jamie, how about you? I think that kind of going off what everyone has said, I think that I thought of it as he needs to know and accept that he is more than just a Worthington or Archangel or a superhero. So I think that Mary's kind of, I didn't necessarily think it through the end, but I think that knowing that you're more than that means that you have other things underneath that, which is like a family and people who love you. But I do think that he needs to know that he isn't just the persona he created for himself. I think and because of the persona he creates, people can never know him to be something different, which is kind of obviously like the tragedy. Nolan. I second the normal life thing, definitely. That seems like the main, and they're not the only two characters either who fantasize about a normal life in this comic. I am going to say, and kind of try to attempt to do what Mark did, though probably not as well, is that I think what Warren needs is simplicity and things to be not complicated. That's sort of what I got from it. So let's talk about Betsy. Nolan, what's Betsy's need? Betsy needs to be, I mean, maybe you could call it a normal life. I would say her, the way her need and her public persona like conflict is that she needs to have like good relationships with her actual family members, the Braddocks and her like adopted family members, the X-Men, but she tries to be like independent, not to let them dictate her actions. I'm going to break this puff, puff, pass circle and go next only because I totally agree with Nolan. I think what Betsy needs is to be taken care of. And I, I would say to be loved, but that's such a comedy, but it's so much more than that. It's, it, it is, she needs, she's giving Warren what she wants. She wants someone to take care of her like that. And I also think that that's beautiful. Jamie. 
I think that kind of going away from what everyone else said, I think that she needs to like believe and trust herself in her actions. Cause I think that that's the reason why she, her public persona is justifiable. I don't think that that's why she just second guesses herself so much because she doesn't truly trust herself. So I think that, I mean, it sounds, it sounds like a PSA, but I think that she needs to believe in herself and her decisions. I think she needs to like actually believe she's justified as opposed to looking outward for that affirmation from others. I think she, I, I totally agree with that. And I think she needs to give herself permission to, to do all these things because I feel like she thinks a lot of these things like self-acceptance and believing in herself are selfish in a way maybe. So I think she just needs to give herself permission to like not give into these things, but to, to embrace them. I think, I think all those are true. And then in in addition to that, I think she needs to be needed. Phantom X brings this up and I think he nails this because he tells her that, that she could have helped Warren more, but that she didn't because she needed to be needed. And I, I think that's a little harsh. I think it's true to a small extent, but I think that definitely shows in other examples. I think she jumps out of the plane when they're leaving to stay with Art Archangel. I think that's because she needs to be needed. She has the public persona there of wanting to be with Archangel to convince him that he's that he's the old Warren and that he loves her and is a good person, but I think she really wants him to love her. I think she wants not to help him, but to help her and feel like she can actually bring him back. I think that was the ding, 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 ding answer. I think that was the, yeah, I think you've, you've, because you, that was in the script as well and you've, you've pointed it out so well. <laughs> uh, and that just, here's an, a, yet another example of how Remender gives us this information. We don't need to read into it because he understands these kinds of things. Marius. No, I got nothing to add. I absolutely agree. You agree with everybody? Yep. Yes. All right, cool. So the relationship between need and public persona is on the whole a constructive one. It's what defines our personalities. Though it's an unconscious process, the formation of a public persona to cover our need is still a creative process. Tragic flaw is the latent destructive potential that exists in the relationship between our need and the public persona. If we remain oblivious, jam up of the tragic flaw, we are effectively self-blinded and doomed to walk the streets like Oedipus. And so I always just say that it's the, uh, the jam up. Let's start with Marius this time. I think that Warren's tragic flaw are probably like the moments in which he appears extremely weak or extremely desperate. For example, during the finale of The Apocalypse Solution, where he's essentially, after trying to get himself to murder the kid Apocalypse, he's having kind of his nervous breakdown where he starts crying and just falling to the floor and he's like no we can't murder a child and it's kind of like i mean his public persona is that he wants to be like in charge and making these decisions but i mean how far from a normal life could like the murder on a child be so that's where those two things start to crash and that's where he realizes okay something like is going like extremely wrong and I think there were a couple of those moments, especially when he begs other characters to kill him. So I thought those were like his tragic flaws. Yeah, going off that, I definitely think, yeah, with his public persona of trying to be the leader, 
results in a tragic flaw. I mentioned earlier how much I love the beginning of volume three where they're in his head and he decides to go along with Archangel or he says that Archangel is trying to fix him. And I think that's the tragic flaw. That's the breaking point where he can't really resist anymore. And he decides he wants Archangel to lead him. Yeah, I definitely think that Archangel being a separate being in his head, like guiding many of his decisions is like textbook definition of a tragic flaw, like a characterized version of a tragic flaw. But I think also in summation, his tragic flaw for me in a word is burden is that's what stand the burden of everything he's done of all these things he has to do are what's standing between him and a normal life. And if that's what he really needs, then that's his tragic flaw. Jamie. Yeah, I think that Mark said exactly what I was going to say. I think that he, his public persona has to be responsible and because he's responsible for everything else, he can never satisfy his, his desire to have a normal life because if you have a normal life, you're not the person responsible for the world. So yeah, I think that his flaw is that he can't let go of being the person that has the world on his shoulders and because of that, he can never truly be normal and settle down and stop being so involved in all these ridiculously high-stakes decisions. No one. I kind of agree with Mark and Jamie, I guess. I mean, I think that the, what separates his confidence from the normal life that he wishes he could have is is all these lucky things that in in to do with his birth and his like upbringing that as you say justin end up making him the most unlucky mutant you know like he's not normal at all and his all his sources of confidence are abnormal they're like extreme wealth a pretty good power as far as powers go good looks you know these things that you know, separate him from an average everyday life. I would say that I, I, I agree with Mark the most, I would say. And, and I think that I'm going to contradict something I said earlier in a sense, because I'm, I'm going to say that Archangel is Warren. Through, within, like, sort of the diegesis of the story, no, it's not Warren. But metaphorically, it is Warren. Warren has this inside of him. And I sort of think Warren's tragic flaw is the fact that that the archangel doesn't fit into his sense of self. And I think that the, the burden that we all talk about of what he's been through causes him guilt even and, and, and shame. And I, don't, and I think because he has this sort of tunnel vision and can't accept these things as part of who he is, he can't move past them. And that's sort of what, to me, adds to to him not being able to lead a simple life. What about you, Nolan, in regards to Betsy's tragic flaw? Betsy's flaw, I guess I see them both as their, like, social positions are their flaws. You know, like, she just wants... I don't see her as, as needy as everybody else seems to. Like, I don't think either her desire for independence or her inner, deep, innermost desire for good relationships are needy they're like normal things to want but they don't but they like conflict you know and she just happens to have a very demanding brother two very demanding brothers an overshadowing father and the x-men of course always are very demanding to be involved with so it's sort of like she just can't have it both ways oh uh, jamie i think that when she realizes there's a choice like out of her hands that she can't make that there's no rational 
decision, I think that's when she just completely breaks down. So, yeah, and I don't know if I can say exactly why. I just think I noticed that it's always the moment that she completely loses it is whenever there's a choice that's so impossible that she can't make it. And so then her reaction is always just to take herself out of the equation because she always assumed it's her fault. So, yeah, I think her tragic flaw is that she's always blaming herself. That's a ding. That's a ding ding yeah, ding for that's me. That's true. Yeah, yes. me too. I completely agree. I completely agree with that. I think. I think what comes to mind most for that is when she sees this horrible future that she creates with X X Force when their ideology is taken to the extreme, and her immediate reaction is to commit seppuku. And I think yeah. that's just the most apt tragic flaw is that she's just so hard on herself and. Ding, 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 ding. Yeah, she she is she is very hard on herself, and she she's not very good at forgiving herself for not being able to make these impossible choices. I think she expects way too much of herself, and is is very bad about cutting herself some slack. So I think that that is what's really motivating all of these tragic things that happen around her character. Yeah, totally. I I agree, and I think that. Another breaking point she has, I think it was Jamie who brought this up earlier about how she wants to stick with Warren after he's died. And I think that's definitely a breaking point where she failed to help him. And that that results in this, where she blames it on herself and can't leave one because she loves him and wants to stay with him, but also because she failed and he's dead and stuck there. And she feels like she has to be stay there too. No, I completely agree. Nothing to add. Yeah, I would say um, I think everyone has had some ding, ding, dings with this. And I'm going to say actually the converse of Nolan. And I think her tragic flaw is that I don't think she's that emotional or abnormal thing. But I think she thinks she's emotional. And she Uh, is hard on herself. And the way that she feels about her emotions fall outside the parameters of what she thinks is okay that she can feel. And I think that mm. that's why she has these sort of moments where she's not going to leave Warren, where, where, where these, I don't want to say, outburst is such the wrong word. I guess these, like, these moments where the need is, or sorry, where the tragic flaw is just so utterly revealed, which happens to her a few times in this. And I think that, you know, she's the type of character, oh my God, I, I like her so much more now than I ever have. Thank you so much, Marius. I, I, I think that, she's the type of character that you kind of want to give a hug to and say, everything's going to, you're going to be okay. You're okay. Everything is going to be okay. And you know, you, you can let go a little bit. And I think it's because she can't do that, that she's unable to have that life with Warren that was in that, you know, mental sort of uh flash forward. So any other thoughts on this with, with these characters? Anybody? Nope. Okay. Let's just move in straight to art. So, Really quick, I just want to say, we talked about the use of silence, and there were a lot of horizontal panels in this, and I, I just felt like giving that some lip service because I thought it was like super important. But we all picked a page, so let's talk about why that page is significant, and if one person wants to add to it, go. Dylan, let's start with you and, and your page. Yeah, my favorite page was in X-Force Volume 3, page 76, is this awesome moment when they enter the Age of Apocalypse, or it's just as they're entering the portal. And it's all blue for the most part. And I just love blue color. I think that it works really well here, especially. But then I love how red is used in a small bit with dark 
beast and is this contrast and shows that he's evil because Phantom X says that he still doesn't trust Dark Beast and that red is like the visual indicator that Dark Beast is evil and it's going to betray them. And I love that. Mark, how about you? I don't have the exact number of the issue or page number because I'm not as well organized. Oh, wait, I do. As... It's page... Oh, you do? Yeah. Uh, wow. Uh, you're talking about... Um, oh, wait. It's uh, Uncanny X- X-Force issue oh, yeah. 34, page 16 and 17. Thanks, guys. So, yeah, this is the scene where Wolverine is fighting Dakin. And I love Wolverine. I love Wolverine fights because they're very intense and... Wolverine is more is often more animal than man and here he realizes he has to kill his son because apparently his son is going to kill all the students in the future and it's heartbreaking because in these vicious attacks you see flashbacks or well flash forwards to an alternate future where Wolverine was a good father to Dakin and they did normal father and son things like he's like one panel is him uh, attacking Dakin and the next panel is him tying Dakin's shoes as Dakin is a little child and the next panel is him drowning Dakin and you know he's on a camping trip with his son in the following panel and then it just ends with Wolverine just cradling the the body of his murdered son and it's it's just the contrast between the those two realities is just heartbreaking to me and you can feel it like this is definitely, uh, this hurts me a lot more than it hurts you moment for Wolverine, I think. It's just dealing with, like, the consequences of him not being a good father to his son when his son needed it most was, was just devastating to me. And I think that, like, those moments are really what make comics worth uh, reading. Uh, Jamie, how about you? Oh, you want to talk about my art? Yeah. Okay. Again, I didn't know it was going to happen. Oh, no, we'll come back to you. Uh, Nolan, talk about yours, and then we'll do you, Jamie. Mine was from volume six, in which they're in the dystopian future, page 109, part of like an extended sequence in which Psylocke is first attempting to kill herself, but then like running as they attempt to apprehend her and prevent her from killing herself. For one thing, it reminds me of Blade Runner, the rain and the rooftops as a setting. And that I think is like a good choice in terms of like cyberpunk aesthetics, but also the, it doesn't quite move in like a, you know, like left to right or top to bottom way, which is really interesting. And then perhaps most like poignant of all is the fact that like from an over the shoulder view of Punisher, we see him attempt to like pull a gun on her to prevent her from killing herself, which, and she comments on how, you know, how they have no other way to, like, deal with things than that. I love Maybe that. Maybe Punisher himself doesn't. Yes. That's a great moment. That's one of my favorite moments in the, in the book, is just you see how, like, convoluted Punisher and the X-Force of the future's ideology is all they know is inflicting pain and damage on others because that's how they solve their problems. Yep. So the panel I picked is a big two-page horizontal spread from volume six near the end. And it's kind of after Betsy has kind of like, I think this is like near after she kind of tried to kill herself. And so she's having this like psychic dream with her and Warren. And it's very similar to kind of the psychic dream they had together when they went into the future or she gave him the future of their lives. 
I don't know. I just really appreciate it. I love the colors. I love that it's like this angelic heaven and it's beautiful how he's like an angel carrying her. And she just seems so lost in her like ethics that it's nice to have Warren kind of like hold her and be like, trust me, like these are not easy choices and you're making a lot of them really well. And in the end, like I like the, his kind of meditation on life where near the end of the panel, he's like, Oh, like he's like, find new love, allow yourself to live, and then in the blink of an eye, you'll be with me. So it's kind of a nice little meditation on life in general. The idea that like you, you love, you try, and in the blink of an eye, it's over anyway. So enjoy it while you can. And I thought it was beautiful, and I liked it. I'm not, I'm not really one for heaven imagery, but this was really nice. Yes. So I chose Uncanny X Force issue 18, pages 17 till 19, and those I actually like the pages. Uh, in which the fast forward takes place in which uh, she telepathically has her, her and Warren like experience this perfect future where they grow all together and he finally dies in peace you could say and i just thought that like the the coloring on these pages like as opposed to like the coloring on the rest of the arc was just, it was just so like visually distinct and it gave it made it like feel almost so surreal and i feel like it had to because um, i mean it was surreal so it kind of really accomplished what it had to and like this idealistic future it was also it just felt so bright and perfect so that's kind of like what the the beauty behind that also i thought that it was interesting that the pacing was so was just so like unusual so you would get like 50 years of like family history in these three pages so i thought that was something that you don't see quite that often i love that as well i really liked volume three page 46 and it was we talked about this where uh the nazi guy says no man outruns his past and then you know wolverine i think is it i think i forget if he decapitates him but he definitely uh fatally injures him in a gruesome way but they're horizontal panels, and the bottom panel, what I love about it is, you know, Wolverine is, is both reacting to killing this person and reacting to what he says is, you know, I hope you will try and remember that when your victims will come for you, that no man outruns his past. And Wolverine, I, I think, clearly looks very distraught and sad and guilty over this, even though he still goes through with it and does it. And I... I think it's a wonderful panel where you get to superimpose a lot of, you know, what you think he might be going through onto him. And the art does such a good job of, you know, allowing you to do that. I also love that Wolverine seems to know, I mean, of course, there's no way I can know, but, but sort of, I guess what I'm superimposing onto it is that he seems to know this, this prophecy that, you know, his victims will come for him and that he can't outrun his past. And he sort of does it anyway. And I think that's what I found really heartbreaking i also found it you know kind of cool that he did this for magneto and i think we kind of all answer this but will you recommend this book to anyone who you're gonna recommend it to you and did you like it go mark i would absolutely recommend this book to anyone i'm not sure if i would recommend it as for someone 
who has never read a superhero comic before, like this isn't when this wouldn't be like the first book I would introduce someone to. But if they had grown up like me reading a lot of the like classic Spider-Man, classic X-Men, classic Iron Man, where everything's very bright and sunny and they get kind of sick of that, I would definitely mm. put it not not putting those books down because those books are great in their own way. But I would definitely give them this as a 21st century like post 9-11 kind of global threat theme of mm. uh, a comic book. And I think it's a great example of that kind of writing that Rick Remender does brilliantly. Uh, Marius Jamie Corey. Uh, this is actually kind of funny because Uncanny X-Files is actually uh, like the first comic book I recommended to someone who has never read a superhero comic before. Oh, that's and so funny. I, I mean, this is like for a really specific reason because I, I mean, there's a lot of like prejudice against superhero comics about them being like too straightforward too like just stupid and uh mindless and numb and whatever i i guess that makes sense what was what was their reaction to it oh he loved it he was like that's great was he the one who cried uh no that was was someone else someone else but i mean it's kind of like you can kind of have to go uh in it like this okay so admittedly i mean there's a lot of really up stuff happening in the book and a lot of crazy stuff that you would wouldn't find in any other genre but it's like um if you look past that or you if you embrace that you're actually gonna find something that's really thoughtful and really like i mean it's it's a piece of art i mean yes and i would also recommend this to like any x-men fan who didn't get to check it out yet because it's uh, just one of the best like mutant themed runs in the 21st century so well said jamie i would say it's good for everyone but i think that you would get more out of it if you had an understanding of the x-men because some of the best parts of this book were when they would kind of have to interact with the x-men or talk about the x-men and they'd be like no that's different from us there's some point where they even say like this isn't even a team this is just a group of like people like this is just family which Mm -hmm. is also what x-men's about but i do think that it's good and everyone would like it but you get more out of it if you have read some x-men before Corey. Yeah, Jamie said it well. I mean, it helps to know Apocalypse and to be conscious of the Dark Phoenix saga and Age of Apocalypse, you know, that roster and team. So apparently I was going to say that you need to know the X-Men, but as Marius proved, you can enjoy it cold turkey. But I think it definitely helps knowing some of that other stuff. Don't. I would definitely recommend this. It was my first superhero comic and it made a lot of sense to me only the beginning with the shadow king was a little confusing because there was a whole backstory there i didn't know but everything else is very contained and yeah and that was great because i've looked at some other superhero comics like some x-men and spider gwen that had like great style but confusing content and then yeah i thought this had a great style and just made a lot of sense it kept it jumped through a few arcs but they always were very connected and made sense so if you had a friend who's like, I want to read a superhero comic, you'd recommend this one? Yes. Cool. Yes. Awesome. Depends on the friend, but probably right. yes. <laughs> yeah. We, yeah. You don't want a, uh, a mean friend. Uh, Nolan. I have already recommended this to a lot of people uh, or a few people since starting it. The only person, the only people likely to read a superhero comic that I wouldn't recommend it to are people who are bothered by gore because it's super gory. This is all like high healing factor characters. They get killed like... 20 plus times you know throughout the comic which is great i love that people who like deadpool and people who like ultra violence tend to be one and the same so you know anyone like that i would recommend it to awesome uh everyone okay i would recommend it's funny because i don't know why because i only saw the end of the movie for x-men apocalypse but for some reason i feel like if you enjoyed that 
like at the very end that I would suggest this move, uh, this this comic to them, just because I feel like all the char- like not all of them, but the characters that you enjoy are in that comic. <laughs> but also, but also because it's like it's kind of like. If you even if you get like the most superficial idea of what the X Men are about, and then you go into this comic, it's less of an X book anyway, and more of just like a really dark story. So I feel yes. like it would be good for anyone. Yeah, I would say I would recommend it to, and maybe this is because of my own personal experience, a waning X Men fan, a fan who mm. loves X Men but has yeah. like waning taste. Because this will, this will, this is a story that's after 2010 in this decade, and is really good and. You know, there's been some questionable stories. I wouldn't say questionable. There's, I've been sort of a proponent that the X-Men have been lacking a lot of depth lately. And I think uh, reading this really reinvigorated Mm. my uh, love for them and the team and the writers. And it made me, you know, want to go back and see if there's anything else I may have missed or, you know, go back and read my favorite stuff. I have always said that the best X-Men stories are the peripheral X-Men stories. And I didn't really consider this maybe a peripheral one, but it, 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 it isn't the main team. And I think that there was a lot of freedom I shouldn't say that if there if there was I don't know but there whatever freedoms the creative team took it really worked for me here and I really really love this and for me personally it got me excited about X Men again and that being my favorite whatever comic franchise it was really uh, exciting that was beautiful who said yeah thank you thank yeah. you and does anybody have anything to add about uh, any of this stuff about any of the Remender run nope Remender is awesome Jamie. anything he writes I was just gonna say that when I finished the last volume he. I read his little note and he said something that explained to me why I liked it so much, which was that he was like, whenever I started this book, I looked at all the characters and I thought about where they began and like where I wanted them to end. And I think he did that beautifully. So I think Mm. that it's a cool thing about his writing that he immediately was like, I know how I want my characters to develop. And I think that he did a good job. That Now that is beautifully said. And I completely agree with that. And oh man, I was going to give you another compliment, but I forgot what it was. You're beautiful. (laughs) <laughs> anyway, but thank you, Jamie, for saying that. But I think that's like the perfect close for this podcast. So uh, thank you to all the people like Mark and Dylan and Nick and uh, well, Marius, first time here. And but it's the rest of you guys' first podcast. So thank you guys so much for being here and for doing this. And uh, I know it's like a really, really late night. And so thank you guys for staying up late. And I hope you all had a blast. I hope everybody listening had a blast. And just a reminder. Check us out on comicsverse.com. More podcasts. Please listen to them. We love you all. Thank you. Yeah. Thank you, Justin. Bye. Thanks for having me. Bye, everyone.